I knew from the time I was in second or third grade that this was the only thing I wanted to do with my life was to be, a, I'm a total book nerd. And that's what, that's, that's what I am. And so if you, you know, it takes a strain off you, if you have a, if you can create a source of money for yourself and then you feel good about yourself that you're bringing in money instead of being broke or being dependent on other people. So that's my solution. Start as a senior field, make money, and then you can uh, have time to do your own, own, own creative work. It's very important because writing the book is only half the battle. The other skill set is marketing and monetizing. But you can do that. You have the option of doing that today. At the Apollo Theater in New York, the expression is be good or be gone. In books today, it's be good and be gone. Say what you need to say and get off the stage. Commit and do the tiniest bit. And then, as you said, and that's what I teach, just do a little bit every day. Momentum is more important than talent. Hey guys, and welcome back to the I Love Success podcast. If you're new to the show, thank you for coming here. If you're with us for a while, we thank you. We love you. I mean, we've done over 200 episodes right now, and I just feel so, you know, honored to be able to share so many amazing human beings' stories. And hopefully, if you're listening and watching this right now, uh, you're on, on a course to a better life. If you're struggling right now, that's fine. We all have to go through that. If you're on the top of the world, that's awesome as well. Uh, just, just keep fighting for your dreams. Um, I have a big, fat mission. I want to help at least 10 million people in 10 years to go after their dreams. It's uh, what makes me take it makes me wake up early in the morning. I told Michael here, our guest, that I woke up early, ran. It was so dark this morning that I barely couldn't see. I had to use the flashlight on my phone in order to see what was in front of me. But I just love the silence and to, to explore the world when, when the world is sleeping. It feels like I have an edge of the world. And, uh, you know, here we are, it's morning for me here and I get to get to do this. So thanks again, guys. If you like what we do, if you enjoy the show, please share it. Give us some love. We do this absolutely free. The only, the only thing we want is, first of all, that you take your life seriously and go after your dreams. And second, that you, that you help us out and, and help me building this tribe of the I love success, uh, you know, nation of people that want to want to succeed and create a better life. With that being said, let me introduce this week's guest. And I mean, I love what what it what it's written on your website. As my wife Suzanne will tell you, I don't know much about anything else, but I know everything there is to know about the books. <laughs> I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Uh, you know, you also say books are magic and a good book with your name on the cover will transform you. It changed my life, certainly. And books changed everything. And, and, and by reading, my life has been so much better. So without further ado, the man, the myth, the legend, he has written so many books. I, I don't know where to start his published books for, you know, the biggest uh, publishers uh, in the U.S. and the world, and, and and also help Britain. You know, incredible books for game changers of the world. So, without further ado, let's welcome Michael Levin. Peter, thank you for having me. It's a privilege, and I, I'm I'm laughing because no one's ever quoted that line off the website before about my wife saying that he doesn't know anything other than books. But it's true. <laughs> if something breaks in the house, I say all I have is. Two, two tools in my toolbox, a checkbook and a phone. Call the man. I, yeah. I don't know anything. So, But when we talk about but, books a little bit. Anyway, thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, what did it say? Don't be a jack of all trades, right? That's a master of none. Uh, so let's, let's go back, Michael. Where did your fascination and love for books and this, the written word start? It started when I was a, a really little kid and my parents uh, read to me and I can still hear my father, my father's voice reading me, Ask Mr. Bear and Winnie the Pooh, which were my favorite books when I was tiny. And I just fell in love with the magic of a book, the idea that you could capture a story in pages and it's 
printed out and people are reading it all over the world. And I just thought, wow, isn't that amazing? And when I was in, uh, I guess about seventh or eighth grade, they took us into the library and they showed us a film strip. And I don't even know how to explain what a film strip is to anybody under 40. It's sort of like a series of snapshots of, uh, uh, you know, you could, today you'd call it a deck, uh, but it was, uh, it just showed, it showed an author uh, pouring over his galleys, meaning the pages that were going to be, uh, you know, printed up in book form. And I saw them, I said, that's what I want. So I knew from, I knew from the time I was in second or third grade that, this was the only thing I wanted to do with my life was to be, a, I'm a total book nerd. And that's what, that's, that's what I am. Wow. And uh, when was the first time you wrote something that you were proud of? Um, when I was uh, about 13 or so, I started writing letters to the editor of Time Magazine and Newsweek and the New York Times, and they started to get published. And I would see, you know, they say that there's nothing as hypnotic or as addictive as seeing your name in print. But then I'd look at the sentences that I'd written and I'd just say, those are good sentences. <laughs> so, you know, it was a, I, was a, I, was a, I was a nerd. I'm still a nerd. I have, I have kids who are really cool. I'm not cool. They are. But, <laughs> you know, I know the difference and I have no illusions. But I just, I just... I just like the rhythm of the things that I wrote and I, I, I like the music of, of what I was writing and, and, and the comedy and the terseness. So I just, I just felt as though I can do this, you know? And where did you, did your influence come from? Is that something that comes natural to you or did, did you have someone teaching you this or, or is it a form of reading? Like, where does that come from that, you know, sometimes we see a, an athlete doing something spectacular and we always wonder, is that talent? Is that training? Is that inspiration from dancing or completely different? And, and the mind of this person just works in a beautiful way and, and he or she have this sense of putting these, this together into a beautiful thing. Uh, can you just share... How, how, how has that process been for you? Sure. And I, I've worked with a lot of top athletes, as you mentioned, some people in the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, people who won the Super Bowl, people who won the NBA Finals, and uh, people who are highly successful in all fields. So, And I've talked with them about this, and I think it's a combination. I think it's all of the above. First, I had the very good fortune of having parents who were literate, who loved books, who, who as I said, read to us. And I think there's nothing a person can do more important. Uh, you know, I mean, part of loving a small child is, that you have is to read to that child and every night. And that's just, that's how they go to bed. And then they fall in love with books and they fall in love with reading, especially in today's world where everything, you know, everything is visual, visual, everything is digital, but to actually hold a physical book in your hand. So I had that from my parents. And then I definitely have a gift from God to write. And so the thing is that lots of people have gifts, but the thing is that do we develop them? And I developed a deep, deep fascination with writing and, uh, and, and with other people's writing from a very early age. I was in the library all the time as a kid, uh, taking books out, reading books, trying to understand why things were structured the way they were structured. How was a story put together? How was a newspaper column put together? I would buy, you know, when I was 13, uh, uh, or 14 or so, I bicycled to the store to buy the early edition of the newspaper. And then I bicycled back there a couple of hours later to buy the late edition. And I laid them out side by side to understand what's the difference? How are the stories updated? What moved around? Uh, and, and then when I started to ask myself, what are the concerns that authors are writing about? How difficult a, a challenge are they posing themselves for themselves? What kind of story are they trying to tell? So you start to, so a lot of it is teaching yourself. And then I had phenomenal, phenomenal teachers in high school and especially in college who taught me how to read really thoughtfully and carefully and to understand what is the author really trying to do? What is, and, and not just from the perspective of the reader, how am I enjoying this? What do I think is going on? But what were the author's goals? What was the author trying to accomplish? And then you put sort of put yourself into the mind of the author. And I remember one night walking around my college library and looking at all the, there were half a million books in the stacks and thinking to myself, 
all these half a million authors cannot be smarter than I am. They cannot all be better writers than I am. I have to be at least in the bottom, you know, quartile or whatever. And I, and I, I have to be able to do this. And I just started to write and I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate to, you know, I didn't have the confidence in myself, but I had the, I had the ability and the confidence came over time. So. And I like what you're saying. You didn't have the confidence, but you had the ability and you put in the work. And and when when does, uh, you know, the, the work transpires into confidence? Is that when you get published or get some type of recognition or like, when, when does that transpire? Because I, I've thought about that a lot as an athlete, you know, didn't have confidence, but you get some good wins. And even if I didn't win the tournament, I felt like, wow, I could really fight against this great fighter and that gave me confidence how does it work in the in the writing environment yeah, for you that's a great question i had a client very successful businessman and he said confidence is a long-term proposition it doesn't come from one success you, you know he said you can have one success like somebody starts a dot-com and it's very successful and they do that in their 20s and they sell it for a lot of money and that's great but the thing is that you can also um be very afraid as a result of that success. How am I going to repeat it? Am I going to be able to do that again and again? So he said, confidence is a long-term proposition. It takes a while to develop. And part of it is internal. Part of it is just simply, as I said earlier, looking at the sentences that I wrote and knowing that they were good sentences. It is the sense of the building block of everything in writing. If you can write a good sense, everything else is just mastering that form, whether it's a newspaper article or a book. I hope this is interesting to people. It's interesting to me. But then, you know, you get, then there are external things. As you said, you know, you win races. I do marathons, but I do them very slowly. I've never, I've never, <laughs> the only time I was in the top five in a half marathon was when there were only three people in my age group. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a medal for, you know, for the place in my age group, something, which I, you know, I'm very proud of. But I mean, there are moments when you see, when you see your writing published in Time Magazine in, in Newsweek and you're 14, 15, 16 years old, when you see you've written a long letter to the editor of the, the sports section of the New York Times and they run it, it, it does something to you. And then when I was in college, there was a moment when one of the student groups, I worked for the newspaper, I was on, on, the, on the student newspaper, one of the student groups took over the newspaper and uh, they, they weren't happy with the way they were being covered. So they had a sit-in and they locked us, they locked all the editors in a room and we couldn't you know, we were able to get out the window. They didn't think of that. And that's how we were able to get the paper out. But there are about 17 of us. And this is a very good school, very good college, Amherst College in Massachusetts. And all of the kids who were working on the newspaper, were they were all good writers. They're all smart kids. But the thing is that as we started to talk about how are we going to write a story about being taken over by this group, everybody just sort of assumed that I would write the story. And I just started taking notes. Nobody assigned it to me, but it was just sort of, they, everybody knew that I would do it. And that was, a, that, was, that was a turning point for me because I thought if all these other students, my classmates and people who are older than I am, junior seniors, if they have that kind of confidence in me, I must be good, you know? So there are things like that. It's the external validation. You know, you sell your first book, you sell your second book. You, little by little you say, Maybe this is going to work out. So, you know, and here I am and, and I'm very fortunate it has and it continues to. So, yeah. And can you just talk about selling your first book? And was that the first book you wrote <laughs> or how, how, how did that how did that happen and how did that feel? Oh, my gosh. The first book I sold, um, I became very interested in religion when I was in college and I increased my religious practice and my parents and my family and my friends, everybody thought that I joined a cult that I'd flipped out. I didn't think I was crazy, but they all did. Yeah. And I had noticed that uh, one of my college professors had written a book when he was in his early twenties. Most of the time you think of authors as being much older. So I thought, well, if he did that, I can do it. So I wrote a manuscript about my religious conversion experience. I sent it to 30 publishers. I found 30 religious publishers in, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a reference source. And I sent the first two chapters in an outline and an overview and a cover letter to 30 publishers. 28 rejected it instantaneously. One called and expressed a little interest. And then the 30th of them, which was an afterthought, I, I don't even know why I put it on the list. Um, they, they wrote back and said, we're very interested. This is, this is pretty good. 
So their offices were in Hoboken. I was in law school in New York City. So I took the subway and then the path tube and I walked from the path station in Hoboken to their office and went in and the editor said, yeah, I was a little concerned about the editing, of the ending. And he's flipping through it and he says, yeah, okay, let's do this, come on. Uh, and then he took me into the publisher's office and said, Bernie, I wanna buy this book. And Bernie's like, okay, we'll give you $500. And I was like, they're gonna give me money for this book. He said, all right, I'll give you $1,000, but that's the most we're gonna give you. I said, I'll take it, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I walked out of there, you know, we shook hands, it's a deal. I walked out of there literally yelling as I walked down the streets of Hoboken back to the you know. <laughs> and so and then it was a, I felt like I'd been hit by lightning. And I and then I wrote I wrote my friend, then I wrote I wrote my first novel. It's called The Socratic Method. Uh, I knew somebody at Simon and Schuster, I sent it to him, he liked it, he turned it over to an editor. It took eight months, but he bought it. And oh my, he called on a Friday. He said, we're going to let you know next Thursday if we're buying the book or not. Like, why did you have to tell me that? It's six days of agony. <laughs> the sixth day, this is before, this is before there's even, you know, call waiting on phones. You know, people get a busy signal. So people are always calling. Did, did he call you? Did, no, he didn't call. Goodbye. Did he call you? No, he didn't call. Goodbye. And then, you know, then the day that I'm waiting for him, that, that same day, I go out to check the mail for a second. And there's a postcard from, from an agent rejecting the book. He was, I, I'd been told, send the book out to these five agents in case Simon Schuster says no. So the very day I got the postcard from the last agent saying, we're not interested. The other four had already rejected it. And then he called and he didn't have that undertaker's tone in his voice when people have bad news. And I'm like, he doesn't sound like he has bad news. And sure enough, he said, we like your book. We think we can hit the yuppie market pretty hard with it and we want to buy it. And uh, we'll give you $7,500 for it. And I said, well, how about 12.5? And he laughed. He said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> so, right. so I'm not much of a negotiator, but uh, you know, but I mean, and then, and then I started calling everybody back and I just started screaming into the phone, yes! And I'd hang up the phone and call the next person, yes! Call my mother, you know, and so on. So, I mean, you know, when you're trying to do something and you get that kind of external validation, yeah, it's, it's very sweet. It's very It's amazing. I, I remember when I uh, got my first book deal and I, I sent it to like 30 or 40 publishers as well. And like it, it feels amazing. And I want to also talk about the other side of being a creator, being an artist, because uh, how, how do you survive during the time you're building yourself? And I think I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of creators. They have a lot of pushback from family and friends. Like, hey, when are you going to get a real job? And there's always that, you know, internal struggle. When when am I going to quit? And when am, am I going to continue? And uh, some people like yourself find that, you know, the courage to, to keep going because the, that's the only thing uh, you want to know. Uh, can, can, you, can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I have a law degree from Columbia Law School. It's one of the top yeah. law schools in the country. Didn't want to practice law. I was in and out of two law firms each in about five months because they could tell I didn't have my- how, how did you finish law school if you didn't want to do it? Like how 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 how, how did you <laughs> kept kept the motivation to, to kind of do that? I have a very high tolerance for pain. But the other thing is, <laughs> the other thing is that I knew that I wanted to write and I, I couldn't figure out how to make a living writing. It's so, you know, I had, I had opinion pieces in the New York Times and this and that, but I just figured, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how writers make money. So I figured yeah. lawyers write, judges write. So I'll be able to use my skill in service of a career and I can pay for my life. But I, I just, I didn't want to do it. They didn't want me. I was all but fired from the first job. I was fired from the second. And so I just scrambled financially for the next few years. I sold three novels to Simon & Schuster, but the total amount that I got for them was uh, about $65,000. And, you know, that's not a lot of, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but, it, you know, I mean, yeah. it was like the late eighties. So um, it's, it, it, it doesn't exactly pay for a very lifestyle. Uh, uh, so, right. And then I met a man who be in 90, 90, forgive me, in 94, I met a man who has been my mentor to this day. And yeah. he sat me down in a Dunkin' Donuts and he said, you know, I've worked with a lot of you creative people. He said, you cannot do your best work if you cannot put food on the table or pay for your rent. He said, I'm going to show, he was a very successful businessman. He said, I'm going to show you how to start a business that's going to pay for your life. And 
He's, and he said, you're going to offer writing classes. You're going to find a space and you're going to offer private writing classes because this is going to keep you in your field. We're going to figure out how much money you need to live on. That's going to be, and you're going to, and we're going to divide that amount, that monthly amount by 80, because you're going to work 20 hours a week on these classes, marketing them, preparing, teaching, marking up the homework and so on. So these are classes for adults. And we figured out what my monthly budget was. It was probably around, I don't know, 4,000 a month, 3,500 a month. So the question is, how do I make $3,500 a month in 20 hours a week? So we, we determined how many places in each class I'd have to sell, how many classes, how much to charge, so that my income would match, you know, and what my expenses would be. I had to buy chairs. I had to pay rent to somebody. I, I started in a yoga, in my, I went to my yoga teacher. I said, can I, can I rent out your space for teaching classes? He said, sure. So it was all, you know, it wasn't a favor, it was business. And I filled up those classes and then more classes and more classes. So this taught me a very important lesson, which is that you should never, if you're trying to do creative work, you should never force the creative work to pay for your life. Have something that pays for your life so that you can do this other creative work. And that business of teaching writing classes, people started to say to me over time, can you consult with me? So I had to work out an hourly rate and I didn't know how to do that. And I'd go back to Bob, how do I do this? I'm raising my rate, I'd be crying. Is am I worth it? Who's gonna pay me this? And then finally, uh, people started saying, just write it for me. And as a result, I developed a ghostwriting practice which turned into a ghostwriting business, which I ultimately sold and started a new one six months later. So the short of it is that from that 20 hours a week trying to make $3,500 a month, so I could pay for my life. It turned into a business. We were doing more than hundred books a year. I was employing about 35 people and 40 people, you know, it was a huge thing. So, you know, but the main thing is that at the beginning, I did not force the, my, my creative work to pay for my life. And a lot of creative people do that. And so if you, you know, it takes a strain off you, if you have a, if you can create a source of money for yourself and then you feel good about yourself that you're bringing in money instead of, being broke or being dependent on other people. So that's my solution. Start as a senior field, make money, and then you can uh, have time to do your own, own, own creative work. I love that. A, a question though, when, when you built this successful business, did you, did you have time to be creative? Less and less. I was turning from the creative person into the suit and it didn't fit me well. <laughs> Because I'm, I mean, I, you know, I'm a successful businessman. I've learned how to run a business, but I'm not a real businessman. I don't have, I'm, you know, I don't live to, you know, to take companies private or public or anything like that. And and it got to the point where I was starting to have health issues from the uh, the stress of of it. And as soon, once that started happening, the people who knew me really well said, "Sell the business." I had an opportunity to sell. They all said, "Sell it." All my business friends who didn't really think about, like my hardcore business friends, they're like, keep the business for three, five more years. You know, uh, you'll be able to sell it for $10 million. And, and, you know, and, and, I, and I read a book about selling businesses and it said that sometimes owners can stay too long at the fair. You know, like they have the opportunity to sell it for X, but now they want to sell it for 3X or for 5X and, uh, and, and they wait too long. And then the economy changes. Well, you know, what if I didn't sell the business and then COVID strikes and now I'm running a business and I have to have, and I'm paying a, making a payroll with 35 people during COVID. I don't want that. I don't want to be that guy. So I was, I mean, nobody sees pandemics, but nobody sees any crises coming. So I was very fortunate to just get out from under it when I did. My business friends were very upset with me, the people who knew me. And I was able, you know, I said, I've got starting to have these health issues. They're like, you're done. You're, it's over. Get out. And, and I did, and I never looked back, so. Yeah, I think this is a struggle that a lot of, you know, creators have because a lot of creators are also very good at other things. So they learn to, to be good at other things to survive. But then just like just like in your situation, it, it, it almost goes too well and it's hard to say no. Uh, what... What are the lessons that you learned from that that you can tell others that are in the same situation? They have this big burning desire in them to create and they are creating a lifestyle so that they, they can create, but the, their other job, they're good at that too. So it's starting to take more and more time from their, from their actual 
you know, main focus and they're losing their, their, their main focus and, and time just flies by. Look, it's already October, right? We've been uh, inside for almost a year and hopefully people that are listening have done something with their life, but it's also very easy to be the best Netflix watcher in the world right now, right? <laughs> so yeah. can we just talk about that? Because I think that's so important. Well, you touched on a word a moment ago. You asked several really important questions there. And the, the first is, how do you, um, how do you not, I mean, I felt as though when I was running that company that I called it the, the day, the day job that ate Chicago, you know, it was just, it just kept growing. And, um, you know, you, you want to find great people and let them run it as much as possible. And, and then you, you're not, you're not that person, but from, I mean, the, the real issue is, you know, creating, um, creating the, the word that you use lifestyle. That's the answer. I was just on the phone with a person who does book launches because my clients, my ghostwriting clients, they don't just want a book. They want to become thought leaders. So I was referred to this person who is just outstanding at launching books and turning people you've never heard of into thought leaders. This is what she does. And I said to her, you know, I can send you a lot of business. I can white label you and it's going to be great. And she said, I'm very grateful that you're offering this. But the reality is that I'm booked until next April. I don't want any more clients. I have a nice rhythm with my work. And I'm not taking on any clients until next April because it's going to disrupt my lifestyle. So you have to decide who am I? What matters to me? Where do I want to put my time? You know, I, I, uh, um, I, I, I like to go, you know, you worked out this morning. I went to the gym this morning. I like to go to the gym every day. I like to work out. I like to work out hard. I like, and that takes time. I like to take care of myself. I have a family. I like to be with my wife and my four children. Uh, I have religious obligations uh, that, that, that have to be fulfilled. Uh, I have community obligations. So the thing is that I'm not really cut out for working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. It's just not who I am. I'm productive. I can get a lot done. And if you give me four hours, I can do a day's worth of work. I can do two days worth of work in four or five hours. So I'm judicious with my time. I protect my time. And I, and, and so the advice is don't take on more than then, then you're comfortable handling. Don't let the money drive you. And the, you know, rather than take on so many projects, just if you're that much in demand, double your fees, charge more. You know, let other people. That's your leverage. Instead, of, I mean, you know, my my mentor Jay Abraham says, don't try to build an empire, try to build a fortune. And that's really brilliant advice. You know, an empire with tons of people working in the desks and. It's a lot of HR, it's a lot of overhead, it's a lot of problems, it's a lot of everything and who needs it? And I like to keep things simple. I have a very small team. I have a new, I have this business that I started. I think I have about seven writers. I have uh, three people who work with me to run the business and that's it. It's not 35, it's 10, it's manageable. So you, you know, and then as far as uh, not being active during the pandemic, there's no excuse for that. I mean, there's no excuse for wasting seven or eight months of your life and sitting and watching Netflix. I don't, I don't, I don't relate to the person who does that. I don't understand the mentality of the person, you know, uh, we're not here forever. We're not, we're not here. For, you know, a friend of mine had tattooed on his shoulder, what his father said, which is we're not here for a long time, but we are here for a good time. So, you know, to, to, if, if somebody sat from March 17th, we're, we're talking in October for seven months and watched Netflix and didn't do anything, Shame on that person. I don't even know what to, I, you know, I don't even know what to say other than stop it. Because I, I just, I, I don't understand the mentality of somebody who would waste uh, precious, uh, uh, you know, consciousness and precious time, time on earth to, I, look, I like to watch sports and I like to waste my time, you know, watching games on television. Okay, fine. But the thing is that I'll watch half an hour of a game. I'm not spending 12 hours a day downloading. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off, but I don't, I don't get that. I, I just don't get the mentality. Yeah. I, I I totally understand. And one thing that I've learned, I, I used to be very hard as well, but I, one thing I've learned, there's there's a lot of limiting beliefs in, in us human beings. And if you're listening to this right now, and if you've, you feel like you wasted time, it today is a good day to get started and to take that next step on, on your on your dream. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the whole, the, the whole book industry and what have changed since you started. And it feels like we're in a society right now where the attention span is about three seconds and people want 
to know everything now. There's even services summarizing books in, in 15 minutes. And uh, like this long format is not for everybody. I think it's about 2% of the population that is actually interested in listening to a one hour conversation. And those are the people that I want to tap into, uh, to, to be honest. But uh, how, how have you seen the book industry change? And also, do you believe as a writer today, you have to write differently than let's say 15, 20 years ago in order to be successful? Yeah, these are great questions. And first, I apologize. I didn't mean to sound so negative toward the people who've been yeah. sitting there, but get off the couch, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? So I don't, yeah. even, I don't even think those people watch your show because, you know, this is this is, uh, this is too vibrant. So I think, you, I think you speak to people on the path. The publishing industry has changed radically. I mean, the, the, the first thing is that, you know, the independent publishing has taken off to the point where you can you can finish a book this afternoon and you can publish it tonight on on Kindle Direct with Amazon, and it can be available around the world for sale instantly. And then you can use uh, uh, social media to niche market in ways that were unthinkable in the past. It used to be that the major publishers had a hammerlock on the distribution of books and on the marketing of books. And in, in recent years, there's an Arab Spring for authors, meaning that the old uh, 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 you know, companies that uh, that insisted you do things their way, they're fading. They're, they're, they're not, they, they've lost their power. They've lost their ability to control. So anyone can publish anything at any time and then market it extremely efficiently through social media, digital marketing, Facebook, Google. So it's an incredible time for writers. And it also means that instead of just writing a book and waiting for somebody else to publicize it, you have to be your own book marketer. You can't just write it. You have to get it out there and monetize it. I teach people how to do that. It's very important because writing the book is only half the battle. The other skill set is marketing and monetizing. But you can do that. You have the option of doing that today. And uh, what was the other question you asked about? Um, if you have to change your writing in yeah. order to tap into people's shorter attention span. You know, I do, I do a, a twice-weekly newsletter. And it's on just whatever comes to mind. And it's fun. And um, one day, and if people want to subscribe to it, they can just go to michaellevinwrites at gmail.com and they can subscribe for free. So um, one day, one of my clients called and she said, oh, your newsletter got was really good today. It was really well written. And I thought, what was different today from, you know, I mean, there were, I think they were all good. <laughs> so I looked at the way it had been, for whatever reason, the editing function made it so that it was only one sentence per paragraph. So it was very bite-sized and she really liked it. So now I do everything. I do all of my newsletters, one sentence per paragraph, because that reflects where the attention span is. And, you know, you have to get to the point. And also today, you know, shorter books are better than longer books. You, you can do a book that's 50 pages. You can do a book that's a hundred pages. This would have been unthinkable because in the past, biggest book won. Whoever wrote the biggest book, 1,000 pages, 800 pages, four, oh, that person's the authority. Today, it's say what you need to say and get off the stage. So if you can say, your, if you can get your message, let's put it this way. If you're trying to sell people on an idea or a service or a way of thinking about things, if you cannot close them on, you know, get them to accept that idea in 100 pages, you're not going to get them in 200 pages. So, you, you know, it, it, at the Apollo Theater in New York, the expression is be good or be gone. In books today, it's be good and be gone. Say what you need to say and get off the stage. Does the lifespan of a book, is that shorter today and than it was 20 years ago, you think? Yeah, people want things that are clearly current. I like to say that today, uh, going forward, people are going to judge books, either they're BC or AD. And BC is before Corona and AD is after Donald. So, <laughs> you know, so people are going to see if a book doesn't talk about if it's a business book and it doesn't talk about selling in the pandemic or selling it to how the world has changed because of the pandemic, everybody's at home, they're buying from home, then people can say, oh, this book is useless, it's out of date. And similarly, uh, if it's, I mean, if it's certainly it's a book about uh, uh, family or health or anything like that, and there's no references to what's gone on in the last year, people will say this book has no relevance. Even if 99% of the material in the book is still useful, it's gonna look like it's out of date. So it's really important to constantly update your material and 
you know, it's so easy to do a second edition. You just make a few changes and then you put second edition on the cover. Everybody thinks, whoa, this book was very successful. Maybe, but, or maybe you just simply added new material to make it current. You have to stay current today as an author, absolutely. And I'm curious about, uh, you know, sometimes us creators, we get in our own way. And I, I know, for example, for my podcast, I, I never wanted to do this virtual uh, conversations because I believe uh, in face-to-face meetings. So I did that for the first 170 episodes. And then this happened and I said, what am I going to do? Am I going to quit or am I going to pivot? I choose to, to pivot and and not thinking about everything has to be perfect. I don't have to be in a perfect studio and my guest audio doesn't have to be at the highest level. And and that has opened so many doors for me because now I get to meet people from Boston, like yourself, from Australia, from Venezuela. And it, it opened a lot of doors. What are the best tips you can tell creators that are blocking themselves from actually creating? Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's so funny. I mean, I'm not in the studio. I'm in the basement. I'm sitting at my son's desk. desk. You can see the gym equipment over there. I love it. There's my desk and there's the, uh, and there's the food because my wife went to Costco. So, you know, it's it's like, don't let the fancy fancy clothes fool you. You know, It's it's just how the world is today. It's, you know, people have a zoom shirt. They keep it by the by their chair and they have to put a business, they put the Zoom shirt on. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, do they have pants on? I have, here are my pants. I want you to know yeah. pants. So honestly, I was drinking my coffee shirtless before like 7.55. I was like, oh, I got to find a shirt now. And this is my Zoom shirt today. <laughs> yeah, so that's how the world is. You know, when you talk about being blocked, and this is a really important topic. And this is something that I teach. I have an online writing course. And yeah. one of the key, one of the things that I start off teaching or when I taught at UCLA or, New York University or in seminars or whatever around the country, around the world, I always start with writer's block because a lot of people think they're blocked and they're not. And I'm going to solve writer's block in 45 seconds. Is that okay? I love that. Okay. So it's very simple. Your brain has two hemispheres. It has a left hemisphere, which is the organizing half. And there's a right hemisphere, which is the creative half. Everybody knows that. So the thing is that when most people sit down to write, They just think, all I have to do, if I'm any good, is I can just sit down, I'm going to start typing, and it's going to be brilliant, and everybody's going to love what I write. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to shunt back and forth between the organizing and creating, organizing and creating sides of their brain over and over and again. The brain does not work that way. It doesn't like to shunt back and forth, organize, create, organize, create. So instead, if you just spend a little bit of time organizing what you're going to write and use your left brain, think through, okay, these are the points I want to make. These are the issues I want to discuss. This is the story I want to tell. These are the characters. Here's something about the plot. Just do that first, and then you go over, and then you start the creative side. Your brain's going to be happy because it's not shunting back and forth. Anytime you do something to your body that it doesn't like, it sends a pain message. You work out too much at the gym, you know, your elbow hurts or whatever, and and it's it's saying stop. So when your brain sends itself a pain message, people think, oh, uh, I'm blocked, you know, because every time I try to write. I get that same pain. I get, I, I, I must be. Now being blocked for a writer is actually great because you can go to a bar and you can go up to somebody who's attractive and you can say, I'm a writer, but I'm blocked. And they'll be like, oh, let me take you home. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easier to, for a writer to like meet people and to, you know, to like uh, hook up if, uh, if, if he or she is blocked and not. But the thing is, is that what you did back in the days, Michael? I know I was the pilot, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I had a Saturn and I got girls. It's unbelievable. So I, I don't know. That was then. Today, you know, nothing. But uh, I'm very silly. But the, the serious thing is that if you try to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between the two sides of your brain, your brain will send you a pain message. Stop it. And people interpret that as I must be blocked. And the reality is all your brain is saying, organize, then create, and you'll and, and you'll never have writer's block or any kind of artistic block again as long as you live. You can still go to the bar and tell them you're blocked. I'm not going to tell you not to do that, but that's you know it's your little <laughs> secret that you're churning out tons of work. So you know, you don't have to tell you don't have to tell them that. So it's funny because that's uh, when I wrote uh, my my books, that's exactly how I did. I had everything outlined and I knew exactly what subject I was going to write. And, and I wrote every morning uh, between 
six to eight in the morning. And usually I got two to three pages in that time. Uh, and I, I didn't even analyze my writing. I just wrote. And then at another time, I analyzed it to not, to not stop myself. And that, that worked very good. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. And for, for people out there now, I know you're helping people writing books and, and create their own book and write their book. So if there's someone here listening that have that dream, that urge, you know, they're a businessman or woman, they're an athlete, they want to start doing more lectures and getting more business or just put their message out there in a book, uh, what's, what's the first step to kind of even realize that this is you, something you want to do? Sure. The, the first thing I want to say is that you absolutely can do it, that, 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 that it's possible, and you shouldn't feel otherwise. Uh, I didn't think I could run marathons. I, I, I went to the bookstore to look for a book on the subject, and there was one called Marathon. You can do it. I said, that's the book I want. So I just want to tell you, you can do it. Uh, then the question is how? Um, is it okay if I mention a course that, I'm, that I have of online course. that people can yeah. look at? Of course. Right, We're going to share the link as well. Uh, so people can get in touch, and if if they're if they're gonna do it, they might as well work with the with the best, right? Thank you very much. That's nice of you. This summer, I I put up an online course on writing. It's six and a half hours of video, and it's everything that you need to know about how to organize, write, or have written for you, uh, and, and then publish, market, and monetize a book. Getting the book done is only half the battle. Then the question becomes, what do I do with it? How do I attain bestseller status? How do I get great blurbs, those little lines that people write that are on the back of the book? How do I get it published without being ripped off? How do I choose vendors to work with for the marketing? How can I, how can I get distributed by Simon & Schuster into bookstores? How can I get into airport bookstores? So I lay out everything in this course. You know, Anybody who wants to write a book can read it, but it's really for business people who want to monetize their knowledge base and their experience and create mailbox money. It's written for anybody who is serious about wanting to teach and then uh, to teach people what they know in order that they'll get high, they'll, people will hire them as a financial advisor or as, a, you know, as, a, as, a, as, as an athletic coach or whatever you are. So people should go to successful-author.com and successful with a little mini dash, a little hyphen, successful-author.com and at the checkout for your viewers, if they use the word write, W-R-I-T-E, all caps, they'll get $50 off the course as a, as a courtesy to your viewers. Thank you. To, to the people in your tribe. Sure. So that's what I would we say. And if you want to talk to me about, if you want me to write the book or my, you know, then, then uh, my website, my writing company is michaellevinwrites.com. So you can, it's called the Michael Levin Writing Company. So you can take a look at that if you want to bring in as a ghostwriter. And those are the ways I can be useful. And if you just want to, if you've got a question or something, just drop me an email. It's michael11writes at gmail and I'll answer the question and I'll get back to you and I'll tell you what I think. So I'll be delighted to do that. So those are the ways they can find me. Thank you. We, we appreciate that. And, and as far as, you know, uh, I, I remember when I, when I got talked to my, my first publisher, they, they told me like this, having a book is the best business card out there. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Jay Abraham, who is my mentor, says that a, a business leader, a CEO, an entrepreneur, a professional needs a book the way everybody else in the organization needs a business card. Because the thing is that everybody has a website. Everybody's websites look exactly the same. You know, most people, you could switch out your website and your top competitor's website, and neither of you would notice for months, and your clients wouldn't notice. So they just look generic. I mean, they're all beautiful, and they're all the same. And people have white papers up on their site. Nobody reads white papers. But if on your website, there you are on the cover of your own book, people are like, whoa, this guy's an author. She's an author. And it just transforms the way they perceive you from the start. It changes everything. When you have a book, people want you to speak. It's very hard to get speaking without a book. When you have a book, you shorten the sales cycle because people want to get on your schedule instead of you trying to get on theirs. When you have a book, the person you're selling to can use the book to sell the co-decision makers. If it's a financial advisor, the prospect has to sell his or her spouse on you. Like if I tell my wife I found the guy, she's like, oh, yeah, like the last time you found the guy. But if I say I found the guy and here's his book, she, she reads it go, okay, this guy looks good. Or if it's in a corporate setting, you know, you give six or eight books to the, pers to the person you're talking to. They give them to everybody who are co-decision makers. And all of a sudden they're like, well, yeah, this person's good. 
So, I mean, the power of, I always say magic happens when you, when you, we talked about that at the beginning, books are magic. Magic happens when you, when you do a book, you can never predict where the magic is going to come from, but it's going to come. So I'm a big believer in, in the magic of books. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, and writing books have, have changed my life and leveraged my life in, in, in many ways. And uh, heart to heart, Michael, I'm curious, are you still in love with writing the same way you was as a, as a kid? And, or how has that love evolved? It's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question. The short answer is I love it every, much as I, every bit as much as I did then. And I thank God every day that I get, I get to get up and do the thing that I love the most. I'm around books all day long. I'm around people. I'm planning books with people. I'm talking about books. I'm interviewing people for their books. I'm reading chapters of books that, that, that we've written. Um, and, um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I still continue to work on my own projects. Um, I have a band. I sing. I write songs. Now. You know, I've been writing songs for a while. And uh, I put a phenomenal band. People can go to meetthenewcomers.com. They can hear my band. And, and, and writing songs is a little different from books because it's so many, it's so miniaturized. But the, the short of it is that I love the act of writing a good sentence today. And I have confidence in myself that I didn't have when I was brand new. And to me, it is a joyous act. It's an absolutely joyous act. And, uh, you know, it, it, I get the same sort of exhilaration that I do from, you know, from skiing, you know, or from, intimacy let's put it that way that's how much i love writing and if you love what you do that much you're a lucky person yeah you are uh, i'm curious which which are the book you wish you wrote the bible because uh, the sales have been very good I can't answer that yet because I don't, I don't know. If you ask me in college, what do you want to do with your life? I, why are you in college? I'd say I'm, I'm pre-novelist. I'd say I'm here to learn how to write a book that if I read it today, I wouldn't understand it. So that's what I'm always trying to do. I'm always trying to learn more about the world and understand more so that I'm able to write something today that I didn't understand, but I couldn't have understood when I was 18. And so I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know what I'm going to learn, say, in the next year. So I don't know what's going to be in that book that I haven't written yet. But the short of it is that once I find out, I'll write that book and I'll put it out. Yeah. And, and how, how much do you write on your own projects every week? Um, it, that's a great question. It varies. I'd say about... I'd say about 20% of my professional time is on my own projects. Right now I'm working on a one-man show. It's going to be here in Boston. It's called The Mom Show. It's a tribute to my mother. I wrote a manuscript and a friend read it and said, this is a one-man show. I said, you know, you're right. So I've been turning it into, so it's going into rehearsals um, in two weeks. And then when the pandemic lifts here in Boston, the governor says you can have people in the, show, in the theaters. We're going to, it's at the Huntington Theater. We'll be one of the first shows that, that opens in Boston when the pandemic oh, wow. ends. So I'm putting a lot of time into that, putting a lot of time into my songs right now. Um, I, I, uh, I just find a lot of joy in expressing a lot of outlets and that's really fun. You know, I get to go to, yesterday I went to the Museum of Fine Arts. They, they had me come in because, um, it says it's unsafe. Yesterday I went to the Museum of Fine Arts because uh, I do a lot of journalism about the arts. So I got to see the new Basquiat exhibition and walk around the museum and you know, I mean, I love that stuff. So I'm really, so I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't get back to sleep for a minute. So I just thought I'm going to start writing the, the Basquiat piece. So I'm laying there in bed, composing an article and, and, you know, and I, to me, it's just, it never stops. It just never stops the joy of the joy of self-expression. I was a very shy kid. I'm an introverted person who learned how to stick his hand out. Hey, how are you? Uh, but the thing is that I, you know, the communication, I didn't know how to communicate my feelings or anything when I was much younger. And now I have the ability to communicate ideas and, and thoughts and dreams for myself, for other people, uh, whether I'm doing it in the, in, in, in the theater piece, in the songs, in my own books, uh, I'll never stop. Uh, you know, I'll, you'll, you'll, you'll my wife said, well, what's your retirement plan? And I said, it's, you know, you prying the pen out of my cold dead hand. You know, there's, there's no retirement <laughs> when you, you know, when you, when you love what you do, why would you stop? That would be crazy. Yeah. So you know, I'll, keep, I'll keep on going for as long as I possibly can. 
I love that, Michael. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm going to let you go. I just have one final question. And that is for people that are still here watching and listening. Thank you, guys. Uh, what is the first step they can do to get a little bit closer on their dream right now? Well, first, Peter, I just want to say thank you for having me because your questions have been fascinating. And it's, it's just a pleasure to, to get to know you. And I want to thank anyone who's sat through an hour of listening to me, which is more than my wife or kids could dream of doing. <laughs> express my, not just my gratitude, but my shock, my outright shock that you've done that. But I, I think the, the, the first thing you can do is just simply commit and commit. Just say, this is going to happen. Write it down. I was told to print out goals and carry them, laminate them, carry them in my wallet. That sounds cheesy, but I do it. So what I would say is write down, I'm going to do this. Write down the day you're going to finish it carry it. You don't have to tell anybody, just tell yourself. And then Tony Robbins says, never leave the scene of a decision without taking an action. Never leave the scene of a decision without taking an action. So if it's a book that you're going to write, write the first sentence right now. If it's a song, write the first couple of words of the lyrics or the first piece of the music, whatever it is, commit and do the tiniest bit. And then as you said, and that's what I teach, just do a little bit every day. Momentum is more important than talent. If you, if, if you have momentum, talent will find you. Uh, the quality will get there. But the most, the most important thing you can do is do a little bit every day and, and, and never give up. Never, ever, 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 ever give up. That's my thought for the day. Thank you so much, Michael Levin. We're going to share the links. You can just press them if you want to learn more about his work and, and have that book in you and need some help. Uh, I really appreciate you guys that you are here with us uh, today, that you're taking your life seriously. We have more than 200 conversations now. Check it out at ilovesuccess.co. I even give away a couple of free chapters of my book. I mean, I want you to be happy. I want you to be successful and to have that dream you're working on and, and make those dreams goals and make them tangible and have something to wake up for every day, just like me and Michael have because it, it truly is an amazing feeling and we want you to have that as well. The only thing I would ask you for is if you enjoy this conversation, please share it with somebody, give us a comment, give us a review so more people can find us because uh, that's why we do this. Otherwise, it's just a conversation with the two guys and uh, now we actually, we, we actually want to share it with the world. So thank you everybody and thanks again, Michael and see you guys next week. <music>